you hear Nixon's address to the nation on his Vietnam policy, a lot of young folks I know got upset over that speech. And I don't know why anyone with normal intelligence would have got upset. If you know Dick Nixon, you know what he's capable of doing and you know what he's not capable of doing. And that speech he gave on Vietnam was capable of Dick Nixon. <laughs> Only thing I say about the speech, I felt it was a sad speech. Because you see, he addressed his Vietnam speech to all of us fools in America that's too old to go to Vietnam, get our brains blowed out. And to you young kids that got to go die every day, he just said, be cool, baby. <laughs> then that nerve enough to say to all of the folks that supported his Vietnam policy, he asked all of them to turn the automobile headlights on in the daytime. <laughs> and they did. let you know their mentality level. <laughs> Turning on your automobile lights in the daytime ain't gonna kill no Viet Cong, baby. All you're gonna do by turning on your headlights in the daytime is sell a whole lots of batteries for somebody. <laughs> you know what I really don't understand today? These old right-wing patriots, black ones and the white ones, these old poor folks always wants to hog all the patriotism. And the sad thing about the patriots in America today is in the early days in America, the patriots was always on the side of the oppressed. Today, the patriots in this country is on the side of the oppressor. Very sad. Everybody running around talking about the American flag, want to stick it all up on the car window, holding it, put it in. You know, if George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Patrick Henry, and them cats would have been busy wrapped up in the flag, we'd all have a British accent today. <laughs> and the sad thing about America is 99% of everybody that got one of them flags on is a pure mark of bigotry and racism and stupidity. Damn near one person out of every hundred you see with the flag is a beautiful American. And if you ever live to implement that Constitution, you don't have to be hung up in the flag. It will show more beautiful than anything else. Right, folks. So, welcome to the next episode of Far Left in Texas, and I'm Shannon Carter, your Far Left in Texas, who is the host and the writer and the researcher for this podcast. The opening was Dick Gregory during the Nixon administration. He's a radical black comedian and activist. He's speaking here in 1972. Truth to power. At that time, he was seen as very controversial, and he did a lot of speaking at college campuses. So as I said, this is 1970. One of the campuses that he was invited to speak to was my own in Texas. Of course, I wasn't there. I wasn't quite born yet, but we had recently desegregated, and there's a lot to say on that. That is going to be the topic of a future episode. And the administrators blocked that pretty hard. I have plenty to tell you about my university. Um, it used to be called East Texas State University, and it was the last in the state of Texas to desegregate, a story that 
had been largely buried, even though it was in the books. And I have lots to say about that. I studied a lot of that for a book project that's underway called White Texas. So today, I um, want to talk about that theme that Dick Gregory introduces to us, that patriotism has been hijacked by the racist, bigoted, um, white supremacist agenda. That this was more than 50 years ago is a little bit jarring, and I wonder if Dick Gregory, if he were around, would be really shocked that we are in the state that we're in now. And certainly he called it when he suggested that the flags are everywhere. And the thing that I definitely wanted to bring forward is that part about if if we could and did live up to the promises in the Constitution, then that would be beautiful and that we wouldn't need the symbols of the flags because we would be living in it. And that is a recurring theme across the 20th century leading into the 21st century. Um, there's always the argument that people who are pushing against uh, the patriotic version of the story hate America. And as um, James Baldwin says in the late 60s, I love America more than any other country in the world. And for exactly that reason, I reserve the right to, to criticize her perpetually because we can do better. This goes all the way back to Fred, Frederick Douglass and, and, and so on before. So I'm borrowing the title of this particular episode from Dick Gregory's notion of hijacking patriotism. And I'm looking at comedians who use satire as resistance. And that satire itself is specifically um, a resistant force. I'm drawing especially from uh, Daniel Fuentes Morgan's Laughing to Keep from Dying, African-American satire in the 21st century. She argues that there's that the function of laughter in the draws from the history of, of slavery, and that importantly, the history that we're fighting over is not an issue of in this culture wars, it's not an issue of what's right and what's wrong what's accurate and what's inaccurate. The important bit is how we experience history. Quoting here, um, Manning Maribel, a historian, says, we all live history, quote unquote, every day, but history is more than the construction of collective experiences or the knowledge drawn from cataloged and stored artifacts from the past. History is also the architecture of people's memory, framed by our shared rituals, traditions, and notions of common sense. And that's a very important element. What we see as common sense is the part that is um, written into our lived experiences and the arguments that are being made in the service of patriotic education ride that common sense wave pretty easily because it's working. History is also the architecture of people's memory framed by our shared rituals, traditions, and notions of common sense. It can be a ragged bundle of hopes, especially those who have, uh, especially those who have been relegated 
beyond society's brutal boundaries. That's then where we're going to start this time around. I've got uh, five comedians that I'm going to draw upon, one humorist, and two of them are from the 21st century. The rest of them are from the 70s, um, an incredibly rich decade for comedy, especially of this sort. The two from the, the three from the 70s will include the Dick Gregory clip, which you've already heard. And then, um, then we'll move on to the 21st century with um, Amber Ruffin, who is, I, don't, I just adore I adore her and that work of that show. There's a recurring segment called How Did We Get Here? And I'm going to play a clip from that specifically that's talking about Black History Month and the call actually for White History Month, where we hear the stories of whiteness in context with both that moment historically and also its context for today, something that the Southern Poverty Law Center said is very much missing in uh, contemporary education for that deals somehow with re reconstruction and the legacy of slavery. And then I'm going to turn to one of my favorite and most teachable poems, performance. It's called Whiteness Walks Into a Bar. And I'll play that in its entirety. We'll talk a bit about that. And the last two are from the 70s. The first is The White Liberal, which is a quick folktale, actually, a hilarious one uh, by J. Mason Brewer, who is speaking actually at the same event at University of Iowa that Dick Gregory is speaking at, um, but he's doing it four years later. J. Mason Brewer was uh, started the first uh, African-American studies center at AM Commerce, where I am, East Texas State University. That was after, of course, we desegregated in 1964, and then students began protesting, and like everywhere else, called for things like African-American uh, coursework and histories and books and definitely faculty members. And so uh, Dr. Brewer coming into our campus was one of the responses to that. And as I said, I'll talk quite a bit about him and his work, far more radical than we seem to remember. A number of, of books that I'm recovering and pulling forward, including the first collection on Juneteenth and uh, his his surprisingly radical collection of Black Reconstruction in Texas. And then I'm going to end with Richard Pryor and his work from his comedy album that is probably the most re well-regarded of his comedy albums calling, called Bicentennial N-Word. Uh, he offers this really rich final powerful moment and I will give those final words to him. So let me move on then to Amber Ruff Ruffin and the Amber Ruffin show.
This is called Why We Need a White History Month. truly crazy time in America. And every once in a while, we like to take a moment and ask, how did we get here? In a segment called, how did we get here? It's Black History Month. Yay! Every morning this month, I wake up and look to see what's waiting for me under the Tubman tree. Will it be a white person telling me what Martin Luther King would have wanted? Or better yet, someone saying, why do we need a Black History Month? How would you like it if we had a white history month? You might be thinking that's crazy. The only reason we know about such. We are living through a truly crazy time in America. And every once in a while, we like to take a moment and ask, how did we get here? In a segment called, how did we get here? Black History Month. Yay! Every morning this month, I wake up and look to see what's waiting for me under the Tubman tree. Will it be a white person telling me what Martin Luther King would have wanted? Or better yet, someone saying, why do we need a Black History Month? How would you like it if we had a white history month? You might be thinking that's crazy. The only reason we know about such notable white achievements as Betsy Ross's apparently groundbreaking ability to use a needle and thread or Paul Revere's remarkable ability to scream and ride a horse at the same time is because every month is White History Month. But hear me out. I think we do need a White History Month because the American history that's taught in schools is so whitewashed, we don't learn the real story. We learn lies like George Washington chopping down a cherry tree, but not the fact that George had 18 slaves before he turned 18. 18 slaves. When I was 18, I didn't have 18 shirts. I had three shirts and they all looked like this. (laughs) Each one of them, cuter than the last. We learned that Abraham Lincoln said four score and seven years ago, but not that he said, I am not nor ever have been in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the black and white races. There must be the position of superior and inferior, and I am in favor of having the superior position assigned to the white race. They don't put that on the penny. Partially because it would make the penny too long and partly because our schools don't teach an honest version of American history. And that's why we need White History Month. History shouldn't just be a list of names and dates. It's supposed to give us context for the present. How can we learn about Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass and MLK's response to inequality without understanding the true history of the country that enshrined that inequality into law? For example, in regular history, they tell you the Second Amendment was created to protect against tyranny. But during White History Month, you would learn the truth that the right to bear arms was added to the Constitution so white men could keep their slaves in check. That is a true fact. See how much we're learning? White History Month is fun. I hope you're taking notes in your White History Month trapper keeper. See, At the time the Constitution was written, most states required every able-bodied man who lived there to serve on a slave patrol. These states had posses of white men to keep black people in line. And in the 1700s, they didn't have the kind of advanced adhesive technologies we have now. So slaves couldn't wear name tags. So the slave patroller guys just stopped every black person. Over time, those slave patrols eventually evolved into militias. And during the Revolutionary War, 
those militias became the American army. And when the war ended, America had a bunch of roving bands of men who had guns. So they put those men in charge of putting down slave rebellions. And eventually they put them in charge of enforcing all the laws or as they called it back then, policing. If you're still taking notes, I bet your trapper keeper just exploded. Now, when the Southern states decided they'd rather own human beings than be part of America, these militias became the Confederate Army. And after the Civil War, the militias came back home with nothing to do. So a few of them started a fun fraternity called the Circle of Brothers. Now, you've probably never heard of the Circle of Brothers fraternity because they always lost at the homecoming step shows. Plus, they used their Greek name, Kuklos, meaning circle, and of course, clan, meaning family. You call them the Ku Klux Klan. That's who enforced racial terrorism during Reconstruction. That's who used violence to enforce Jim Crow laws. That's who carried out the lynchings during the Red Summer of 1919. Google it. That's who still stops and frisks black people at 10 times the rate of white people. That's who still shoots and kills unarmed black citizens at three and a half times the rate of whites. Because for most of America's history, there's been no difference between the Klan, the police and plain old racists. So why don't we all know this? Because while Southern men were busy forming the KKK, Southern women were busy forming a fun club called the United Daughters of the Confederacy. The United Daughters joined school boards and formed lobbying groups to make textbooks more favorable to Confederates. And they got so powerful that textbook publishers had to get their approval before school boards agreed to purchase social studies books, ensuring that their version of history is the one that got taught in schools. So now you have to learn the real version from a comedy show. It is impossible to understand politics, the black community's relationship with the police, or why we even need to say Black Lives Matter if we don't learn the history of this country. So yes, let's have a white history month. Let's have 12 of them. Otherwise, we'll never learn information that's crucial to understanding our own country. Like the fact that once upon a time, there were slave patrols who became militias, who became Revolutionary Army, who became the police, who became the Confederate Army, who became the KKK. Just because they don't teach that in schools doesn't mean you can't learn it. But you're going to need a lot more trapper keepers. This has been How Did We Get Here? I would have loved to have had White History Month. In fact, I did not know that history was at all interesting in an academic sense until I started college. After we moved away from the kind of history that's being advocated in this patriotic education, where these people were not people to me, they were dates and they were heroes, and I was not at all inspired by that. I wanted to know how we got here. <laughs> And I have spoken to many uh, friends, my husband included, who agreed that history was not of interest. And I will also say that I was going to school in the 80s. I graduated in 89. And then I got my bachelor's degree in 93. Um, and I, as I said, I had some incredible history experiences. And I thought I wanted to be a history teacher. Um, I ended up being an English teacher. And I was delighted that uh, I taught in Corpus Christi, which was where I uh, my family is. 
and that's in South Texas on the on the water in the Gulf of uh, Mexico. And in my textbook, my teacher's edition, I was I was happy to see the Emancipation Proclamation, but I was puzzled to see in the Emancipation Prop in the teacher's guide. And mind you, this is 1993, which to me doesn't seem like that long ago. That the that 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 document was not about slavery; it was about states' rights. It wasn't a subtle hint in that sense. This was what I was to teach them, and I'm to think back to uh, what. Um, Amber Ruffin was just saying about the daughters of the Confederacy. The daughters of the Confederacy were they were working to make sure that the textbooks aligned with a version of a redemptionist narrative of the history of Reconstruction and before that, where we can see something like D.W. Griffith's Griffith's um, movies that I talked about last time, those two racist movies, most racist movies in cinematic history from 1915, The Birth of the Nation and Birth of Texas. Those make sense in that context that D.W. Griffith could say with much reverence on a mainstream program, that clip that I had at the end, that he's moved by this Confederate uh, soldier the, the, the sword that he was handed by his interviewer um, to tears. And then he ends up talking about his father and hearing about the Confederacy and, and seeing that as an important thing and also seeing the KKK specifically as necessary. He literally says this while he's listening to these stories. He says that his mother is uh, sewing these clan robes. That world existed within the context of a much broader uh, world of resistance. As I mentioned last time, that film was uh, heavily uh, resisted, just as Gone with the Wind was at the, uh, in the time of its, when it first came out in the 30s. So we didn't invent um, resistance. And what we have, what we have done, though, is... Um, the richness with which satire uh, teaches us works at multiple levels, especially rhetorically. So uh, this book I mentioned that I'm drawing from Danielle Fuentes Morgan, it was um, it's published by the University of Illinois in 2020. And her argument is that everything does go back to slavery Um because as Amber Ruffin just explained, this is the history, for example, of our police force. This is the history of, of all of this. And so in the introduction, she's saying that she's not, she didn't want to talk about racism. I mean, about, um, about slavery, but she felt that she needed to. She starts the first chapter which she calls uh, the storm, the whirlwind, and the earthquake, slavery and the satiric impulse, with a quote from Keegan-Michael Key from uh, Key and Peele, that popular um, and 
altogether brilliant in so many ways uh, comedy show. Keegan-Michael Key says, slavery is not funny. Like, it's not funny, you know what I mean? But if you can make it funny, like, you got to make it real funny. This really, I think, speaks to what Dick Gregory's doing. It speaks to what Richard Pryor's doing. It speaks to what Amber Ruffin just said. A couple of points on what um, Amber Ruffin said, because, of course, she's speaking about the nation more generally. In Texas, the same story, of course, the Daughters of the Confederacy. I just told you the impact that lasted um, well into the early 90s that I knew about. Um, I, I went back. I stopped teaching public school and went to work on my PhD, which I got in 2001. So I left the public schools. I don't know if it was still existing in that way, but I have just a couple weeks ago went over a the book, Bill Ames' book, Texas Trounces, The Left's War on History that came out in 2021, where he is describing his fight with this with the state radicals who wanted to rewrite history. So the legacy is still there. In Texas, we also have, and in addition to the uh, daughters of the Confederacy, we have the daughters of the Texas Revolution. These are the ones who are the keepers of the Alamo. And I will talk about that at some point too. But they definitely worked to feed into this same uh, function of, of necessarily responsive. The textbooks necessarily had to be responsive to, and the libraries as well, to these powerful groups of women. These are the same women, the Daughters of the Confederacy especially, who were responsible for all of the statues that uh, were put up in the height of Jim Crow. I'll talk about one of those episodes in a minute too. And the other thing that I want to say before going on to the next in Texas, uh, she speaks about the movement that the slave patrol uh, became the militia, became the army, became the Confederate soldiers, and so, and then became the KKK and the police. In Texas, there's another step in the early days that, um, and the Texas Rangers, much revered and also a bloody, just, just horrifying force in the history of Texas. Many, 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 especially at the Texas southern borders, uh, what happened over time and what's happening now is horrible. So Texas has slave patrols who turned into the Texas Rangers who overlap deeply and, and very significantly with, of course, the Confederacy. They're the same people, but also the um, KKK. And this group still much, much, much revered. Now I'm going to turn to whiteness walks into a bar. Whiteness walks into a bar and orders a scotch on the rocks. Bartender's like, anything else? Whiteness is like, 
Oh, can I also get all your resources, political autonomy, and sense of self-worth? Bartender's like, um, do you want to start a tab? Two. Whiteness walks into a bar and orders an IPA. He gets his drink, and then he just starts wrecking shit. He's smashing all the liquor bottles. He pours the wine out onto the floor. He unhooks all of the kegs, except for the IPA that he has just ordered. So eventually, everyone starts to order that, too, since everything else is ruined. Whiteness sits back on his stool takes a sip of his drink and says, why is everyone always copying me? Three, whiteness walks into a bar with a golden retriever. The golden retriever promptly takes a shit on the floor. The bartender's like, what the fuck, whiteness? Whiteness is like, whoa, 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 tone. Meanwhile, the dog has started to run as it shits, spraying wet feces everywhere, and whiteness is like, you know, if you want me to respect you and your cause, you could try being a little less confrontational. Four, whiteness walks into a bar, and people start to recognize him as the guy who came in last week and stole everyone's wallets. Bartender's like, what the fuck, whiteness? Whiteness is like, hey, we can't change the past, but you know what? This round's on me. Later, whiteness writes off the donation on his taxes. Duh. Five, whiteness walks into a bar and tips over a glass with his elbow. It shatters into a million pieces. Whiteness walks up to the bartender and says, excuse me, it appears that there is glass on the floor. Slowly, everyone in the bar rises to their feet and begins to clap. Moved by Whiteness's bravery and honesty, women throw handkerchiefs at Whiteness's feet. Everyone shakes Whiteness's hand. Whiteness gets offered a TED Talk. Meanwhile, no one notices the janitor sweeping up the glass. No one ever notices the ones doing the real work. Six. Here's the real punchline. Whiteness was always in the bar. Whiteness built the bar. Whiteness owns the bar. Any damage he does to the bar, he's just doing to himself. And whiteness cannot hurt whiteness. Seven, whiteness walks in. Whiteness walks in on 80 feet. Whiteness wears a body in small doses. Whiteness uses its 80 mouths to ask me to tell it about itself. So I say, whiteness, you are a poor substitute for blood. Whiteness, you are a bad joke. Everyone's too uncomfortable to laugh at. Laugh at. Whiteness, I'm laughing in the back of the classroom. I'm throwing your desks out the window. I'm setting fire to the bar. I'm laughing until your legs are small. I'm laughing until your blood is thin. I'm laughing until your throat is parched. I'm laughing until you are small and afraid and wailing on me with your tiny fists. And it's funny, you know. It's so funny. Whiteness, you're a bad joke that everyone is too uncomfortable to laugh at. Whiteness cannot hurt whiteness. This is just, I've heard it so many times, and I'll include it in the show notes so you can watch it. This is Franny Cho. Uh, she's uh, delivering this as part of Button Poetry and in 2016, 2017. And it just offers such a rich tapestry of how whiteness works, how whiteness has this main character syndrome that we've spoken about, how whiteness centers itself in the center of all the things, and that that is happening, especially so as we deal with patriotic education, but it is also dealing when we deal uh, with the Reformation uh, myth. So just to walk through some of the stages quickly, an entire 
episode could be devoted to this one. And I've devoted entire classes to this one. But we have, of course, to go back to the reconstruction narrative of the legacy of chattel slavery, which suggests that we have opportunities to rethink the structure that wasn't designed to serve everyone. Whiteness built the bar. Whiteness owns the bar. And so whatever whiteness does to the bar, whiteness does to itself. So in a reconstruction moment, like we had in the following the Civil War, the moment that the KKK revived to start shutting down and disenfranchising voters and through violence, you know, effectively take the teeth out of the 13th Amendment that's still gone. You know, we now have, still have slavery because of the origin story of the slaveocracy that is America. Our prisons are filled with uh, the new uh, slaves. So she says that first whiteness walks into the bar and asks for a scotch on the rocks and the bartenders ask, "Can will there be anything else? And whiteness says, yes, I will have your, can I have your political autonomy, your sense of self-worth and all of your resources? And the bartender says, well, do you want to run a tab? Yeah, whiteness has been running a tab since the beginning. And whiteness destroys everything so that everyone wants what whiteness has because those are the only things that are worth having. <laughs> if we look at the Reconstruction um, era again through this metaphor of the narrative, Reconstruction would suggest that the plumbing essentially that has been developed to serve the nation does not serve everyone. Um, it doesn't, the pipes don't go everywhere. The, the, what's coming out of the pipes, even if it gets to all of the houses is not drinkable. Um, what is coming um, has caused health disparities and so, and so on and so forth. I mean, just, uh, we have so much environmental racism metaphors to draw from in this. So reconstruction says, we got some screwed up pipes. We have got to revamp all of this. We still believe in the vision, this, um, that, you know, Dick Gregory's mentioning this constitution has this beautiful element. If we could just reach that, uh, moment and it would be beautiful as he says but the infrastructure does not work because it wasn't built to serve anything but whiteness so the reconstruction narrative happens it got blown up in the first pass not because as i was taught even in that teacher's edition of my english textbook dealing just with the Emancipation Proclamation. I didn't learn anything about Reconstruction. I don't know many people who did. 
I didn't know that this was a a thing. I was taught carpetbaggers. I was taught radical uh, radical reconstructionists who took the teeth out of America's story. They took America's story. They took Texas's story. But it was a missed opportunity, as Du Bois says, as everyone has said um, from the, that moment on, especially the series of um, intellectuals who have taken it up. This second reconstruction taking place in the during the civil rights movement, you know, the uh, dealing with the legal systems and uh, desegregating the various places that were built to only serve whiteness now are combined without changing. So still in the service of whiteness, the pipes are still just as they were. It's just that the idea is that we can all use them, but we can't (laughs) because whiteness has a dog that's taken a shit out of all over everything. Then we have, of course, the redemption narrative showing up. The guy comes in, whiteness comes in, and everyone recognizes him as the guy who took all of their wallets last time. And they say, the bartender says, what the fuck, whiteness? And whiteness says, you know, we can't change the past. This round's on me, guys. You know, I'm the good guy. Nothing changed. But we have said, hey, you know, stop making it about race. Keep bringing it up. Stop, you know, just just deal with it. I will. This isn't about reparations. It's about a drink. This, um, this is the reformation version of it that we just have to adjust the pipes every once every place every little bit you know the places where uh, racism has really um torn up the pipes and so forth but we don't need to change anything else even though it wasn't built to serve everyone and so that final bit that says whiteness you're a bad joke this is the real punchline whiteness owns the bar whiteness built the bar whiteness cannot hurt whiteness whiteness asks me to tell it about itself and i say whiteness you are a you're a joke (laughs) you're a bad joke that everyone's too uncomfortable to laugh at we can see certainly some of the essence of that, what happened, uh, not yet at this moment. Um, she may be talking especially about the upsurge um, of after Ferguson. Just in general, um, people of color, uh, a term for those maybe not familiar with it, BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, people of color have been asked by those like me who are served by whiteness, you know, tell me about how whiteness works. 
tell me about why you're saying that this is a racist situation, but do it without raising your voice. Do it without getting mad. Remember the guy said, I would help your cause, but tone, you know, just don't be so yucky about it. Be gentle. So when we hear about what whiteness is and whiteness does, we don't like it. She's laughing in the back of the classroom. She's throwing your desks out the window because we are, there's the refusal to accept that this is their story too. They have to reconstruct. We have to reconstruct for all of us together to make a better. And so we're in the third reconstruction. We have this moment, just as we had more than 100 years ago, to do something about it. But we can only do it if we collectively accept and understand that our story as a nation, the meaning as a nation, the meaning as a state, the patriotism is empty. Patriotism is empty because we've emptied it and it's been hijacked by hate and white supremacy to in the service of the slaveocracy. So I don't think anybody was suggesting that what we need is to get back the flags and the other symbols of the nation because those are meaningless to go back to the to the fictional film about how terrible reconstruction was and also from the birth of a birth of texas from the 1915 films those who are pushing back with violence against those who might suggest the path that they're on is a very violent. We're kissing flags. You remember this? These are symbols. They're not people. They're very different from what we are hoping will happen. So, There's so much, I think, to suggest this taking these things seriously and taking them up satirically suggests this rich place where we can learn something about the, this is the field guide, the field, the playbook for white supremacy, these artifacts that are created are the ones that help us understand how whiteness and white supremacy happens at an epistemological level. That is how we think through and about whiteness. I'm going to go back quickly to um, another quote from the theory that is the satire that, again, I'm coming from uh, Daniel Fuentes Morgan's Laughing to Keep from Dying, African-American satire in the 21st century. She says that I think I'd mentioned already this notion of revolutionary laughter, that these have multiple ways of meaning, just as patriotism and other 
such concepts serve as dog whistles. She says that this is her book um, uh, outline. While laughing to keep from dying begins with slavery and the image of the slave, it focuses on why race, racialization, and racism so frequently continue to form the basis of satirical readings in the 21st century in both fictional and nonfictional events. I shift here and am more concerned with the ways that satire opens up, opens up effective uh, potential, the, the, the effective potential of black interior space and leads to an ethical terrain in which autonomous black selfhood can be actualized. I'll unpack that a bit, but here's, here's the big bit. The, here's the real punchline. Satire opens up, opens an ethical terrain and justice is tied to this terrain. So satire, as we've heard from Dick Gregory, from uh, Cho, from uh, Ruffin, opens up ways of having these conversations and ways of thinking about white whiteness and white supremacy that would not really be available to us otherwise. The story of America, the story of Texas, as argued through this right call for patriotism and just this blind and loyal love of the things that are symbols that those center whiteness and suggest that nothing else is of concern or of issues thinking back to the episode that dealt with Sandra Cisneros and the argument that that was not part of the story that is Texas that's Ames's book in that review Satire opens an ethical terrain and justice is tied to this terrain. Justice is bound by ethics and in many cases the subversive nature of satire reckons with the reality of what justice might look like and what justice might mean by centering the desires of the disenfranchised or the otherwise marginalized. That's what Cho is showing us. Laughing at the back of the classroom, throwing my, your desks out the window, laughing until you're blood is thin laughing until you're uh, till you're small your legs are small you can't you can't hurt me i'm laughing so you can't hurt me and so that i take the power from you and this moves the version of our understanding of reality whiteness is no longer in the center if, and once there's an idea that that human lives exist outside the context of white centrality, then that's something that satire can show us if we're, if we take it seriously and are looking closely enough. And also if we take those uh, patriotic education pushes satirically as well. This focus on interiority, ethics, and selfhood seeks to expand the existing landscape of critical race theory, there it is again, and explains why satire is not only one of the many ways to critique past and present social realms, but especially in the 21st century, a necessary one for the individual and communal survival of Black bodies and Black space. She calls it a subversive 
element that allows the pushback. Black experiences both um, these writerly and readerly vantage points. And as, as authenticity is defined by adherence to expectations, African-American satire rejects this limited scope by framing it as laughable. Whiteness is laughable. You're a bad joke. It is within the space of subversion that kaleido kaleidoscopic blackness must most intimately resides in an awareness of the limitlessness of black identity in the face of its denial. When effectively enacted, these satirical readings demonstrate the multitudinous nature of black identity on individual and communal levels, depicting individuals who perform blackness in both expected and surprising ways, individuals who don't, do not exist as singular stand-ins for a broader community, but are simultaneously such a part of their communities that they cannot be fully understood without the context these communities provide. This kaleidoscopic blackness refutes the post-racial mythology by demonstrating new and expanding expanded parameters for racial self-identification and performance, rather than the eradication of race itself. So, satire, hijacking patriotism, and creating that conflation of patriotic education and white supremacy in ways through redemption narratives and through even narratives of reform. That is the kind of neoliberal choices that suggest there are just a few bad apples. All we need to do is reform the system. So the last bit really takes satire up about 20 notches as this early Richard Pryor most certainly did. The album is bicentennial and uh, man, <laughs> it, of course he's got a purpose here and so it's bicentennial N-word. Speaking specifically about the legacy of slavery in in real time in some very, very powerful and moving and funny ways. This is the last part of this popular album. I'll describe it in a little more detail than I might otherwise because it is difficult to hear and I'm, I'm new with this and so I apologize for for that, but I have linked to this album and everything else I've played in the show notes so you can hear it yourself. It is absolutely worth a listen or 20. In it, Richard Pryor, this is the final segment. It's the title track on the title of the album. And he the takes on the persona of a 200-year-old enslaved man. This is the story of, and it pretends in a very satirical, obviously satirical way that this 200-year-old slave is happy. <laughs> is And that the slave as a singular persona clearly 
helps us recognize that it is still with us. And of course, we know it is still with us now. It's the slaveocracy, which he just really beautifully shows. The very opening is, is, uh, isn't that funny, uh, says the enslaved man. I used to be a king. And then isn't that funny? And he uh, takes on this sort of uh, happy, uh, according to the nomenclature, Uncle Tom kind of character that uh, isn't that funny. You know, I, I, you guys put me with another 400 people and a bunch of them died. Isn't that funny, you know? Oh, boy. And then, you know, you we got here and, and he yuck, yuck, yucks. And um, my mom went, you sent my mom that way and my wife that way and my children that way. And uh, oh boy, you white folks are just so good to us. And then he, and so he yuck, yuck, yuck some more. And then it gets more and more horrifying. We know the story, of course. And then he says, as this persona, you know, I would just really hope that I have another 200 years of this. I've had 200 years of it. I hope I'll have another 200 years of it. And he says, yuck, yuck, yuck. Y'all probably don't even remember it. And then he goes, takes, he pulls back from the character, obviously, and says very solemnly, very clearly, this is the last part, and it's absolutely not a joke. I, I'm i not ever going to forget it. And then I picture that the house lights go down. Under all of this is a track of, you know, uh, my eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord, and it's using the, um, you know, piccolo and all of the kinds of, of uh, uh, you know, snare drum and so forth that you expect to be super, super, super um, patriotic. And then the music stops and he says, because I ain't going to never forget it. I'm going to give him the final word. Again, if you have trouble hearing it, you can definitely try it in the show notes. So here he is. You all know how black humor started. It started in the slave ships, you know. Cat was on his way over rowing. You know, the dude said, What you laughing about, man? <laughs> said, Yesterday I was a king. And having a bicentennial 200 years. Go have a bicentennial nigga. <laughs> they will. They have some nigga 200 years old in blackface with stars and stripes on his forehead. Eyes, <laughs> lips just as shiny. <laughs> And he'll have that lovely white folks expression on his face. But he's happy. He's happy because he's been here 200 years. <laughs> and I'm just so thrilled to be here. <laughs> Over here in America, I'm so glad y'all took me out of die, homie. <laughs> I used to live to be 150. Now I die of a high blood pressure by the time I'm 52. <laughs> and that thrills me to death. <laughs> I'm just so pleased America's gonna last. They brought me over here in a boat. There's 400 of us come over here. 360 of us died on the way over here. I love that. 
That just thrilled me so. <laughs> I don't know. You white folks are just so good to us. <laughs> God over here, another 20 of us died from disease. <laughs> ah, but you didn't have no doctors to take care of us. I'm so sorry you didn't. <laughs> Upset you awesome too, didn't it? <laughs> Then they split us all up. <laughs> yes, sir. We <laughs> took my mom over that way. Took my wife that way. Took my kids over yonder. <laughs> I'm just so happy. <laughs> I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do if I don't get 200 more years of this. <laughs> Lord of mercy. Yes, sir. I don't know where my old mama is now. <laughs> she up yonder in that big white folks in the sky. <laughs> Y'all probably don't forgot about it. <laughs> but I ain't gonna never forget it.